All right, if you are relatively new to North Wake, you've come in the last couple of years, there's a term, an expression that needs to be defined for you, and it's, it's a thing called study serve, right? It's the way that we are ordered on Sunday morning. It looks like this. You come worship this hour, and then you hang around for another hour, and for half of the year, you get to go to an amazing class taught by amazing teachers, and the other half of the year, you serve our amazing church family in amazing ways. So half the year you study, half the year you serve during the second hour. That's basically what keeps this entity afloat on Sunday mornings is your willingness to help with those kind of things. The reason we do it is really John 13. Jesus washed his disciples' feet there. And when he was done, he turned to them and he said this, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So this study serve thing is your great opportunity to wash the feet of people in our church in a much more uh, kind of acceptable way than actually showing up at their house and washing their feet. Um, the tendency that I see is people, the, the, the crying need at Northwake is always in our children's ministry because we seem to excel at making babies. So uh, there's always needs to disciple our kids. And people tend to think like this. The people without children in children's ministry think people who have kids in children's ministry should be required to serve. People who have children in the children's ministry think people who don't have kids in this ministry should serve and give us a break. And we always see the application of Jesus' teaching for the other. And so can I invite you, can I challenge you, to apply it to you, right, to you, and that you would be the one that says, man, these parents need a break, and so I'm going to serve, or you would be the one that says, my kids are in there, their friends are in there, I want to serve with them. So uh, the needs are great. Um, today, let me just challenge you, today, when you go home, uh, please go to northwake.com serve and sign up. Uh, right now, re-engaging after the pandemic stuff that put us off balance, signups are kind of abysmal. Can I use that word? Abysmal. And uh, we need your help. Your church needs your help. So please, if you have not already signed up, uh, go home, uh, go to the website, find that little slot, uh, northwake.com slash serve, not a backslash, slash serve, and uh, help us out. That would be That'd be great. So let me pray for us as we open the word to Ruth chapter 4. Uh, Lord, once again we come to you and we just ask for uh, attentive minds. We have a lot going on. Help us focus on hearing from you. Soft hearts. God, um, many of us have suffered this week and we may not be able to welcome this without the work of your spirit. So come spirit and help us receive it. This good word for us all. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. So if, in fact, you have had a hard week or a hard couple years or a hard life that's pockmarked by sorrow and suffering, hey, this chapter's for you, right? This is for you. Uh, God preserved this for you, uh, especially. And uh, we're looking at Act 4 in the little drama called the Book of Ruth. And I like the way South African pastor Stuart Chase titled this chapter. He says, it's a tale of five redeemers. He says, after everything we've read so far, we come to this chapter expecting to find a redeemer. 
But as we read, a second redeemer materializes, then a third, then a fourth, and even a fifth, he says. The word redeem or redeemer is all over this chapter. It occurs 12 times in these 22 verses, and it's applied to, or at least implied of, five separate individuals. So let's meet the five redeemers in Ruth chapter 4, or the ones that it points to. First, though, a recap for those of you who've been out of town or on vacation. In the book of Ruth, uh, we've seen Naomi, one of the main characters, flee her homeland to the land of Moab because of a severe famine, only to have her husband and both her sons die there in that foreign pagan land where she sought refuge. Word reaches her after about 10 years or so that God has ended the famine in the land of Israel, so she returns back to the land of God's people. And one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, who is fiercely devoted to Naomi, uh, returns with her. And upon their return, Ruth goes to glean in the field to provide just basic everyday sustenance for her and for Naomi. And it's demeaning and dangerous work, but fortunately, she finds herself in the field of a generous and righteous man named Boaz, who it turns out is a distant relative of Naomi. And Boaz takes care to look out for Ruth as she works his fields to protect and to provide for her. Now, last week, Noah did an amazing job teaching us chapter 3, where Naomi finds out about Ruth gleaning in Boaz's field, and he explained to us all about uncovering your feet and what that means today, how that fits into modern-day marriage proposals. You want to go back and listen to that. Uh, But it did end up with Ruth actually proposing marriage to Boaz. Boaz says yes, except there's another relative who, according to their customs and laws, has first right of refusal. And so we've watched the story unfold through Naomi's eyes, and the plot has moved from total hopelessness in chapter 1 to genuine hopefulness in chapter 4. And that's where our story picks up in the fourth and final act of the book of Ruth, starting in verse 1. Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, back in chapter 3, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. A lot, of, whole lot of sitting going on at the gate in the opening verses of our our passage. Um, The gate of Bethlehem, it's like the city center. It's where business transactions happen. It's where the court functioned. Um, And Boaz is going to court, basically, to to tend to the business surrounding the marriage proposal of he and Ruth. And it's like in the story, Boaz sits down at the gate and shazam, this redeemer walks up, that near relative. He just he just happens to, to walk up at that time. And it's another one of these little divine coincidences in the book of Ruth. They're everywhere, right? Um, Ruth just happened to glean in, in Boaz's field. They're everywhere throughout the book. And it's another one of those evidences that God is at work here in this little timing detail involving this near relative's arisal. And Boaz said to him, turn aside, friend, sit down here. I prefer the way the King James Version puts it. It says, unto whom he said, ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. Um, Ho, such a one, 
it, it actually catches the sense, as I understand it, of Boaz's words a little better um, than does the language of friend. Now, some scholars point out that the language of Boaz's greeting rather than friend can best be rendered something like so-and-so or such-and-such. Um, and the best expression I've to catch it is to call this redeemer Mr. What's-His-Name. Um, the writer seems to be deliberately using this anonymous language almost as if he is highlighting that this man doesn't even deserve to be named, as we'll see. But nevertheless, Mr. What's-His-Name is our first, at least potential, redeemer. He's redeemer number one in our, in our chapter. It's helpful at this point to remember what this kinsman redeemer is. A kins as a kinship term, the redeemer denotes the near relative who is responsible for the economic well-being of a relative. And he comes into play especially when that relative is in distress and cannot get himself or herself out of trouble. Um, according to Old Testament law, the redeemer is one who faced obligations to protect family property from passing out of the family relevant to what we're talking about this morning, to buy you back out of slavery, to avenge your murderers, to ensure justice in a legal entanglement, uh, something like that. So the Old Testament laws that governed the responsibilities of the Redeemer are kind of complex, right? And it's been helpfully described as an others-centered law uh, designed not so much to benefit the Redeemer but to benefit the one being redeemed. That's what lies behind this, right? So now we come to the deal at the gate, part one, verse three. So Boaz says to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And uh, Mr. What's-His-Name says, I will redeem it. And now, it says here, Boaz says that Naomi is selling a piece of land. What he means here likely is that she's selling the use of the land until the year of Jubilee. It's all, all kind of complicated. It's based on pretty complex legalities from the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It uses language like usufruct, which sounds like something you shouldn't say in church. So I'm not even going to discuss all the ins and outs of it any further. But I like the way Pastor Chase described what's going on at the Bethlehem City Gate. He describes it like this. Mr. What's-His-Name seems to have been something of an actuary. Actuarial work is all about statistical analysis and calculations of risks and premiums. Mr. What's-His-Name, the actuary, quickly set to work. Naomi was a widow, too old to have children. If he purchased the land rights and she had no heir to inherit the property, the land would revert to his own family upon her death. What's not to like about this plan? He says, I will redeem it. And if Ruth is watching at this point, her heart had to sink, right? This would torpedo Boaz's entire scheme for their marriage. But not so fast, okay? All is not lost. Uh, there's a second clause tucked away in the land deal. 
There's some fine print in the negotiations, so we need to listen in to the deal at the gate, part two, which starts in verse five. Boaz says, uh, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So there's a catch in this land deal, a bonus, right? Buy the land and you get to marry Ruth the Moabite. Now, scholars believe that uh, technically, neither Boaz nor what's-his-name were legally bound to marry Ruth as part of the deal. It wasn't the letter of the law, but more the spirit of the law, which was intended to provide for this family. And that's what made this marriage a part of the transaction, really. The point is to care for the family. Notice the rationale for including Ruth marriage to Ruth as part of the deal, Boaz says, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Uh, this, is, this is a totally unselfish act for the good of this family of Elimelechs, not necessarily your benefit. And scholar Daniel Block points out that in the ancient world, one of the most fearful curses one person could invoke on another was this, may your seed perish and your name die out. So this marriage then would be an act of chesed, that, that ancient Hebrew word that we've talked about that's been showing up throughout Ruth, describing the love and faithfulness of God. Um, it's an act of unselfish love for the good of another. And we already know Boaz is willing to make that sacrifice. But what about Mr. What's-His-Name? Look at verse 6. The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So what's his name? Refuses. He reneges on the deal when he finds out Ruth is part of it. And it would seem here that the intent of the author is to paint him as someone who is wholly caught up with a me and mine first mentality. Um, and this transaction requires others-focused love. It requires chesed. Author Dean Ulrich says, love goes beyond the moral baseline of the law to self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. In addition to keeping the law so as not to harm others, love also includes seizing opportunities to promote the welfare of others, even at cost to oneself. And this, Mr. What's-His-Name, is unwilling to do. Right? So now the attention shifts to Boaz. He's redeemer number two in our chapter. Okay? Author Carolyn James kind of sets the stage for us. She says, uh, how will this impressive man, Boaz, use his power and privilege? For starters, the enormous social and cultural disparity between Boaz and Ruth could not be more pronounced. They're polar opposites. He holds all the advantages, the disadvantages belong to Ruth. Throughout human history and right up to the present, the differences between them are the makings of some of the most horrific violations of human rights. Only consider the explosive combinations, male and female, rich and poor, young and old, 
Jew and Gentile, native-born and immigrant, powerful and powerless, valued and discarded. Anyone watching this nitroglycerin, nitroglycerin mixture, she said, would be expecting something terrible to happen. So let's see what happens. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to another, or to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Melon, her two sons, deceased sons. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Melon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. So Boaz uses his power and privilege to serve the family of Elimelech, especially Ruth. He uses it for the good of another. That's Hesed. That's the very love of God on display. And Boaz is becoming, right before our eyes, redeemer number two. He is an intentional contrast with what's his name. Pastor Brian Evans puts it this way. He says there's a deliberate contrast being set up. This unnamed redeemer was willing to redeem the land, but not the widows. To redeem land meant it was yours to use to make money off of. To redeem widows meant it would cost you something. Boaz cares for these two women and wants to make sure that this redeemer, if he chooses to redeem, will care for them. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my inheritance, Mr. What's-His-Name response. This nameless man did the math in his head. When it was the land, it was a good deal. He was willing. His purpose was to preserve his own name. The writer intentionally leaves his name out of the holy records. In trying to preserve his own name, Mr. What's-His-Name lost it. Whereas Boaz's name is mentioned seven times just in this chapter, right? His name is all over the place. From the beginning, he says, Boaz was concerned about the welfare of Ruth and Naomi. From the beginning, this unnamed redeemer was concerned about his own well-being. And so this raises some good questions for us. Are you more like the unnamed man, Mr. What's-His-Name? Or are you more like Boaz? Do you make calculations before you help someone, or do you help regardless of the cost? Are you willing to bust out of your me and mine always first orbit and sacrifice for someone else's good? So this makes me wonder, you can take this home and chew on it, could it be that the absolute well-being of my family is not always the most God-pleasing priority? It's worth thinking about. Because that seems to be all that what's-his-name is concerned with, doesn't it? Just me and mine. Protect me and mine. Make sure my, my kids are set up for college and for the future. That's, that's all that matters. Here's the thought. If you have been redeemed by God, he wants you to act redemptively in the lives of others. 
And that does not always mean playing it absolutely safe and always choosing what is absolutely best for your family. And I've gone to meddling. So before we move on, all this detail about swapping sandals and such, uh, the testimony of multiple witnesses, the purpose is to establish one thing, this transaction, the land, Ruth, all of it is legit, right? If Mr. What's-His-Name ever came back and claimed that he was the near redeemer and he should have that land or he should have that amazing wife, all Boaz had to do was show him the sandal and call on those witnesses. Case closed. Notice, too, that in, the, in a kind of legal proceedings here, Boaz refers to her by her full label, Ruth the Moabite. And surely he's making it absolutely clear which Ruth he wants to marry, because there has been a switcheroo in the history of Israel before that was very disappointing. So he's making clear which Ruth he's going to get, but he's also making clear that even though she's from another land and another people, another ethnicity, that's not a barrier for his willingness to love and care for her, right? It's not a barrier. The love of God is for all people, every tribe, tongue, and language. John Piper goes so far as to say that all the calamities of this story seem to be designed to get a Moabitess, that's Ruth, into the genealogy of Jesus, as Daniel sang for us earlier. Verse 11, may the Lord make the woman, these are the witnesses, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, Boaz, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be known in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, um, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. So the, the witnesses bust out in kind of a threefold prayer of blessing over Boaz and Ruth. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the, the house of Israel. First blessing has to do, it's a prayer for Ruth to be blessed with children like Rachel and Leah who were kind of like matriarchs for an entire nation. Second blessing is on Boaz. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be known, renowned in Bethlehem. This prayer is for Boaz that he would possess an even greater name or reputation than he already possesses. Pastor Brian Evans puts it this way. He says, what an amazing statement these women make. Boaz's name is of great renown. The author purposefully is comparing the no-named redeemer who wanted to keep his inheritance all to himself to the true redeemer of Ruth and Naomi, Boaz. Boaz's name and family line is famous. The other man's name is struck from the record. Third blessing, may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Similar to the first blessing, but broadened to Boaz's house, the prayers for for many offspring given by the Lord. Note that idea. God is the giver of life in the womb. In Genesis 38, Tamar had deceptively impersonated a harlot so as to sleep with her father-in-law, Judah. And one writer put it this way, if Yahweh had given immoral Judah a double blessing in the birth of twins, and if Judah flourished through Perez, how much brighter are the prospects for Boaz and Ruth? And so now time passes. The next verse, maybe, maybe about a year passes. 
uh, in the next single verse, says, So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So that one little verse, we have a wedding and a baby, right? Um, and the brevity of the account makes you wonder if this was a honeymoon baby. Like, it's like, all of a sudden, there's a baby uh, on the scene. And this is, and remember, Ruth had been married for 10 years and was childless um, with no children. And so God has done something truly wonderful for her here. The prayers of the witness women have been answered. The barren one is now with child. It's God's doing with great clarity. It's the Lord who gave her conception. <clears throat> this is one of a cluster of verses that show that God is active in the womb. You see it in the life of Jeremiah. You see it in the life of John the Baptist, among others. And this is one of many scriptural revealings that gives me great pause uh, to reflect as regards what we do with life in the womb, right? The womb is consistently seen to be God's domain. He is at work here. It has a kind of sacredness to it. And so here at Northwake, this is why we want to care for both parties in a crisis pregnancy. We don't want to choose. We want to love the mother, and we want to love the child. And, and the husband, if he's in the picture, the father. And if, um, if you have the sorrow of abortion in your past, chosen in desperation, or perhaps you encouraged one out of fear, know that you are welcome here, okay? You're welcome here. Alongside all of us whose paths are littered with choices that we regret, there is greater grace for us all here. Right? Thanks be to God. Well, then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman, women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. So now the women bust out in praise to God for his work, his work in bringing this child into the world. And their focus is on Naomi, right? Naomi is the one who started the book with such sorrowful losses, homeland, husband, sons, lost it all. And the Lord brought, she said in chapter one, the Lord brought me back empty. Now the book ends with this blessing of her being filled and restored and nourished by this little grandson. Um, and this little one here is redeemer number three, okay? The women aren't talking about Boaz here when they talk about her redeemer, but they're talking about uh, her grandson, little, little Obed. That's her redeemer. And not to mention the amazing treasure that Ruth is. She says that they say that to Naomi, Ruth is better to you than seven sons. 
Um, they're saying that Naomi couldn't have done any better than Ruth, uh, than having Ruth if she'd had an entire cross-country team of sons, right? Seven of them. Seven was to these people the ideal number, right? The ideal number. Um, Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, became his nurse. This is a picture of what the women had just prayerfully declared. Naomi's life is restored. This little one nourishes her grandmother's soul. And he is named by committee, it seems, um, Obed. Remember that name, Obed. Not so you can name your children Obed. Just remember that name. This is how the play ends, right? With the reciting of a genealogy twice, right? Um, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David, little Obed was. Then he says again, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So the book closes with uh, two gene genealogies being told. There's a mini-telling with just two generations in verse 17, and then a longer retelling of ten generations in the last verses. And there are lots of stories and insights always hidden in these genealogies. Uh, but what matters most here is where they end. You notice they both end in the same place. They both end with David. David here is our fourth redeemer. Though he's not given that title, he's surely going to play that role in the life of Israel. We're talking here about that David, King David, the near future king of Israel, the one who slew Goliath, wrote Psalm 23, a boatload of other psalms, that David, okay? The king par excellence of the Old Testament, a man after God's own heart, the one whose son, it was prophesied, would reign forever, the one through whom the Messiah would come. He is Boaz and Ruth's great-grandson. And if you flip to the New Testament, as we read from our vantage point, looking back, it gets even richer because the New Testament puts it this way. We read this in chapter 1, the book of the genealogy, this is how the New Testament starts, right? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so we're reading in the story of Ruth, not just the story, the family history of Naomi and Elimelech but also the family history of the Messiah, of the Christ, of Jesus. That's where this closing genealogy is pointing us, and that's where this story fits, to the fifth and final Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be yet another Redeemer, not mentioned by name in this text and not known to the author of this book, and would come as the descendant of David. He would be born in Bethlehem and would fully and finally save, redeem his people from their sins. And the scale and scope of this last Redeemer's redemption is going to be global. Revelation says they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. His redemption is global in scope, and it penetrates to the depths of our souls. 
Peter wrote, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So Jesus is the fifth and final redeemer in our story. Is he yours? Could, could you say with confidence this morning that Jesus is my redeemer? He has rescued me. He has purchased me. Have you by faith embraced his bloody sacrificial death on the cross as the full and only payment for your sins? That's, that's why, one of the reasons why we're rehearsing this Ruth play again here on Sunday mornings, so you can hope in the ultimate redeemer for your soul, Jesus. In one sense, Ruth is just a story about one seemingly insignificant family. But we see now their story is part of a much, much bigger story that God is weaving. And it's important to bear this in mind. This little family has no idea about that bigger story that God is doing. They don't, they don't know. Their suffering and their hope is unbeknownst to them part of kind of a hidden bigger story. And so is our suffering, right? Pastor John Piper wisely wrote this. He says, God's purpose for his people is to connect us to something far greater than ourselves. Everything we do in obedience to God, no matter how small, is significant. It is part of a cosmic mosaic that God is painting to display the greatness of his power and wisdom to the world. See, God has much, much better future vision than you or I do. He sees it all. He sees how your troubles are to be redeemed by the great Redeemer and made useful in his hands for his purposes that are bigger than our lives. Another pastor said about the Ruth book, he said, why was there a famine? Why did God bring back this family to Bethlehem? Why did Ruth just happen to end up in the field of Boaz? Why did the near redeemer fail to serve this family? Why did God empty Naomi? He was in the process of bringing King Jesus into the world. Boaz and Ruth became the great grandparents of King David who would be an ancestor of King Jesus. So God is about something much, much bigger than Naomi's family here. He's about something much, much bigger in your sorrows than just you and your family. One day you will see one day. And in the meantime, we trust and we hope in the goodness of the God of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and little Obed. He is sovereign over all the details of our lives, and he is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Melody Green was born to Jewish parents and raised in the Jewish faith. In her early 20s, fresh on the heels of experimentation with drugs, she tinkered with Buddhism in Japan but failed to find anything in it that was genuine. She met and married her husband, Keith, in 1972, and they continued the search together until they stumbled upon a Bible study together in 1975, and they were introduced to Redeemer Jesus. And together, Keith and Melody Green started a ministry called Last Days Ministry, which reaches out to drug addicts and pregnant teens. And as she threw herself fully into this ministry, Melody Green was inspired to write these words. They're the words of our closing song. 
There is a Redeemer. Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, O our Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. So would you stand? Let's thank God together for our all-sufficient Redeemer, King Jesus.